We have had the privilege this morning of meditating and our singing on the grace of God that's poured out on our lives. And today, as we open the book of John, we'll see that grace fully expressed in Jesus Christ, His Son. I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 1 today. We're going to kind of wrap up, we will wrap up today, the, the, what, what many consider here to be the prologue of the book of John that runs from verse 1 all the way to verse 18 of chapter 1. And we're going to see here the glory of the Word, that is Jesus, as He expressed again and again the grace of God poured out through the life of Jesus. Look with me there in John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, this, is, this was he whom I said, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in, his, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Lord, we are so thankful for the opportunity we have to open your word now, to study it together, to dive into its truth, and to seek its application by the work of your Holy Spirit to our lives. We ask that you would meet with us now. We ask that you would use your word in our hearts. And we ask that you'd help us to be humble before you, listening to what you have to say to us today. Lord, I ask that you would help me not to be a distraction from the things that you would like to do in our hearts today, and may we truly come out of this place different than we came in because we have heard your truth proclaimed. Lord, I ask that you would be with us, one who is here today who is struggling with the idea of salvation, who is worried that they, where they'll spend eternity, who maybe they haven't even expressed it to anyone, but has wrestled with these things, who they're not sure, Lord, would you show them? the security of eternity found in you alone. Lord, would you use your word today in the hearts of believers to show us what we need to change, to show us how we can live a life of obedience to you in your grace. In your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever been left on a cliffhanger? Like that. Perhaps you were reading a book and you just had to put it down because you had something else to do, but you had to leave it at, a, at an important point, right? Or maybe it was a movie or a TV show and just as it got good, you know, you, you heard the old saying, well, come back next week and find out. This past year in our home, we introduced our children to the books, The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. And as we made our way through that book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, the, the rule was very simple to my kids. One chapter before bed, that's it. You don't get any more. And some nights, you know, that went fine because you, you, you kind of gain some information about the story, something happens. But then other nights, the chapter ends in the middle of something very important that's happening, and they all but beg, can we please read another chapter? The rule is simple, right? One chapter before bed, and you just go to bed thinking about those things. And then what's great is as a parent, you can stay up and read what happens next so you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> 
For hundreds of years, in the nation of Israel, there was a collection of hanging promises. The Messiah was promised to come and deliver his people. Over and over and over again, the promises came, but it hadn't happened yet. The story of the gospel had already begun, but the critical moment had yet to occur. And that's the thing, the gospel doesn't begin when you open the New Testament. No, the story of the gospel begins at the fall of man when God promises that a deliverer would come and crush the head of the serpent. This is the first declaration of the gospel. But the critical moment of the gospel, the appearance of the Messiah, had not happened in Israel. But one day, everything changed. One day, the story took a leap forward with the appearance of Jesus. And in a manger in Bethlehem, the Savior of the world was born. This isn't a small thing, but a momentous occasion. He is God with us. And it is manifested in his life. And what we see today from the passage is that the glory of the word comes into full focus in John chapter 1 verses 14 through 18. And what you see in the glory of the word is this, that the glory of God shines through Jesus as the fulfillment of the gospel promises. All throughout the Old Testament. These prophets talked about one who would come. The deliverer will come. This is what he'll be like. This is what he will do. This is where he will come from. And Jesus is the one who fulfills that. And because Jesus is the one who fulfills that, all glory of God shines through him because he is God. And John unfolds that and unpacks that for us here in these five verses today. And what we see, first of all, in verse 14, is we see this idea of glory incarnate. God with us. John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I don't want us to gloss over this verse because John chapter 1, verse 14, is one of the most crucial verses in all of Scripture. If you had to pick out a list of some of the, of the most important verses in Scripture, this would be on the list. Because this verse is the fulfillment of all of the gospel promises. This is the fulfillment of, of the Messiah who would come. It is the clearest and most concise statement of what we call Christology, the study of who Jesus is. And if you've heard it, and you've read it before, which probably most of us in this room have heard this verse before, or we've memorized it, or we've read it, you almost wish you could unhear it and hear it for the first time. You've read through John chapter 1. You know who the word is, that he was with God, that he is the final revelation of God, that he is the son of God, that he came to earth. And then you stop in verse 14 and read this, that the word, God himself, became flesh. Do you understand the magnitude of that statement? If you're like me and you've grown up in church and you've, gone to, you've heard the things of God most of your life, maybe we miss the magnitude of that statement, right? Oh, we know who Jesus is. We know that he came to be our Savior. But just stop and think about it. The Word, the everlasting God who has never had a beginning, who created all things, who sustains all things, became one of us. 
became a man. The truth that is expressed here isn't a common truth. This isn't a passing comment. It is the greatest expression of who Jesus is. See, John has established from the very beginning of his gospel who Jesus is. He is the Word. He is the fullest expression of God. He is the Son of God and God himself. As we said, he is the creator, the sustainer. He has no beginning or end. And now, John brings us to this fact that he has become flesh. As one pastor put it, God took on humanity. The infinite became finite. Eternity entered time. The invisible became visible. The creator entered his creation. What an astounding truth. Jesus the final word of God to mankind and that by which he would fully express himself to us became flesh. And that word flesh communicates exactly what you think it does. It communicates this physical form, this physical body that we live in. Jesus became one of us. But in so doing, understand he did not cease to become God. That word there, we have translated the word became flesh. That word became does not necessitate that Jesus ceased to be what he was before, the eternal word. No, instead the second person of the Trinity remains divine while taking to himself a human nature. And there are those who who look at this passage and begin to take it apart, literally take the truth of the gospel apart to claim that God set aside, that Jesus set aside his deity in order to become a man. My friend, there's nothing further from the truth. And if it is true, there is no hope for the gospel. Jesus took to himself a human nature and did not relinquish the divine. He is God and man at the same time. His incarnation was not the creation of a new person. For he has always been, but it was something entirely different as he became human. Jesus would now experience everything that we as human beings experience. Think about this as you go through the Gospels. He would be born. He would grow. He would experience hunger and thirst. He would feel weariness and exhaustion. He would show emotion. He would endure temptation. And eventually his human body would die on a cross. In every respect, Jesus was human. And here he lived on earth like all men. John says the word became flesh, but it doesn't stop there, what? And dwelt among us. That word dwelt literally carries the idea of pitched his tent, or you might say it this way, he tabernacled among us. It's an interesting choice that the author has employed under inspiration of the Holy Spirit because it it may draw your mind back to the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, God designated a place for his people to come and worship him under the law, and that place was called the, the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the presence of God with his people. It was a physical representation of that presence. But... Under this ordained place of worship, under the law, there was no direct access for the people to God. Instead, they needed a priest to enter for them. 
But Jesus came as a man and lived among us. He took to himself every part of our nature, yet without sin, that he may redeem us. That we need no priest to go before God. As we read this morning from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And in verse 17, therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he may be, might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus became a man to redeem you and me. He became one of us. And that is the ultimate act of service of God to man, that God became man in Jesus. As Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. You know, you and I, often think, and and really not perhaps wrongly so, that the greatest act of service came when Jesus gave his life on the cross. And surely that was a great act of service. I would argue with you that's the greatest expression of God's love in our life. And the greatest act of service began when Jesus came as a man. Because you and I will never know what it means for God the Son to leave that perfect fellowship with God the Father and come to earth and live as a man. That the finite, the infinite, became finite. That he lived in, this, in a body like ours that, that has issues, that has problems, that, that needs maintenance, right? He experienced these things as a human being. That is truly service to us, his creation. It is an awe-inspiring thought. My goal here this morning at this first point is that we would simply sit back and see the glory incarnate of God. That we would see what a glorious and wonderful thing that Jesus has done for us. I don't think I can say it any better than the hymn writer Charles Wesley. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Jesus became God incarnate. God with us is what we proclaim about him. And in him, the glory of God is seen. Because not only... Is God with us, but we behold the glory of God in Him. John continues, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, as God, Jesus is due all the honor and glory of God and radiates this glory. Those who witnessed Him in person saw in Him the glory of God. It was a veiled glory, for no man can observe the full glory of God and live to tell about it. But his glory was displayed nonetheless. John says that they observed his glory, the glories of the only begotten Son. 
When we read that phrase, only begotten, understand what it means is unique. He is the one and only unique Son of God. And it indicates to us that the sonship of Jesus is different from any else. Because we read in John 1.12 that as many as received him, to them gave the right, he gave the right to become children of God. Well, you and I can become a child of God, but not in the same sense that Jesus is the Son of God. He is unique in that title. He is uniquely equal with God the Father, and thus he displays God's glory. John and others in this time beheld this glory. The the, the word beheld that John writes here carries the idea of looking upon and contemplating. They looked upon Jesus and what he did and what he said and who he was, and they contemplated these things and realized what they were seeing was the glory of God. The life, miracles, death, and resurrection of Jesus are testimonies of that glory. And this drives to John's main point in the gospel to show us that Jesus is God who came to give us eternal life. Life in Jesus, the Son of God. The words he spoke and the action he performed proved this. And the glory of God is seen fully in what Jesus is. John tells us at the end of verse 14, he is full of grace and truth. Jesus is the full expression of God. There is nothing missing from him. And God deals with us, his creation, first, on the basis of his grace. What is grace? Grace is God's unmerited favor. Him giving to us that which we do not deserve. He is holy and cannot tolerate our sin. But God is also just and must judge our sin because we are sinful beings. We are born in sin and we live in sin. So you and I have nothing in and of ourselves that gets us anywhere near God. If you and I were to live our own lives in our own ways so that we may enter eternity, we would have no hope. Because a holy and just God cannot tolerate sin and must judge our sin. But God is also gracious. And because he is gracious in his love, he has reached down to us and sent Jesus Christ to freely offer us salvation from sin and eternal life in him. There is no hope for eternity without God's grace. There is no new life unless God offers it to you. There is no way for you to be whole and complete without God's work. There is no consciousness of your sin without God's gracious conviction on your life. God owes us nothing, but offers us everything in his grace. That is the goodness of God. That is an expression of the glory of God. God's grace is part of his glory, but just as vital and important is the truth of God. Because Jesus is full of grace and truth. Truth is God's nature. God is defined as truth itself, we read Isaiah sixty-five sixteen, so that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. 
And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my eyes. God himself is truth. And when you read the words of Scripture, and when you hear the message of salvation, and and when you hear the things that we're talking about today, you are not hearing an opinion. You are hearing the truth of God that comes from the word of God. Truth has undergone relentless attacks over the years in our world. We almost so often ask the question, what is truth? And we have come now as a world to this idea that different truths exist for different people. That's not truth. Truth is unchanging. Truth is always the same. Truth doesn't care how you feel about it because it's truth. The message of salvation can have no effect in your heart until you accept and confess the truth of who God is and what he says. See, truth radiates from God in his glory, and he deals with us on the basis of truth and grace. See, God has to deal with us on the basis of both of these things. Because if God dealt with us in truth alone, we will be condemned. There's no salvation in truth alone, right? Because he's a holy God who is just, and he has to judge sin. And we can't live up to that standard. So, so there has to be grace. As one author put it, if God dealt with us only according to truth, none of us would survive. And grace without truth would be deceitful. And truth without grace would be condemning. Jesus is glory incarnate because he is the embodiment of God in human flesh. He he took on his divine nature, he took to his divine nature a nature like ours, that the glory of God may be displayed in his life and work. And, And throughout his life and work, we see the grace and the truth of God manifested over and over and over again. He gave the truth of what God said. He did not shy away from it. And he showed the grace of God to all. And once again, we see this effected glory testified to us by the forerunner, John the Baptist. In verse 15, we see glory declared. We talked about John the Baptist last week, and now we return to him. In verse 15, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. See, Jesus is exalted by John. And once again, John the Apostle calls on another witness to validate his claims and provide further evidence of the deity of Christ as he turned once again to John the Baptist. You see, during the time that John was writing his gospel from Ephesus, there were still those who subscribed to to what can only be described as a cult of John the Baptist. There were those who followed John the Baptist's teachings, thinking him to be the Messiah. And so John writes here to to show John the Baptist's own testimony about these things. Because publicly, John the Baptist testified about Jesus. Jesus. He is the witness of who Jesus is and his place in God's plan. And while John was a man, 
used greatly in the plan of God, Jesus was no mere man, as we have seen. He is the Son of God. And though he was born into this world six months after John, and would not begin his public ministry until after John the Baptist, he is exalted above John by John himself. John says in this verse that he is preferred before him. This means that he ranks above or is superior to John. And indeed he is, for Jesus is God. No man can ever outrank the infinite God. And though John was born on this earth before Jesus, he was not ahead of him by any means. And he he talks about that even from a a time standpoint. We see Jesus' preexistence at the end of verse 15, for he was before me. See, John told us that the one who came after him outranked him, but this is why, because Jesus was before John. And as we have seen at the beginning of of John chapter 1, Jesus has existed from eternity past. He has no beginning, so no one can claim true existence before Jesus. He is God and therefore deserving of all preeminence as God. I believe that Paul's words in in Colossians are appropriate here as well, where he writes in Colossians 1 verses 15 through 18, He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Jesus' glory is proclaimed by God, or by John. Jesus' glory is proclaimed by the lives of those who belong to him. John, it says in verse 15, bore witness of him and cried out. It it, it literally talks about his crying out to other people of who Jesus is. And if we are followers of Jesus Christ, so should it be said in our lives. That we cry out by how we live and what we say and the things we engage in, that this is who Jesus is. He is the Savior of the world. He is the Redeemer of my soul. He is my Lord, my God. He is the hope for all who seek him. And as John stood there, and we'll look more next week at at what John said and did, as John the Baptist stood there and, and cried out, so should we cry out with our lives of who Jesus is. Do others around you know more about the hope of the gospel because they know you? Or do their lives continue on unfazed and unchanged because, oh yeah, that guy goes to church, I know that, but don't know much else. Our lives should cry out the things of the gospel. Our mouths should naturally share the goodness of God. And our hearts should beat and long for those we have influence over 
to hear the truth of God's word. And that glory of God that was proclaimed by John and is proclaimed by those who belong to him is expressed by what he pours out on our lives in expressions of glory. So lastly today we see the glory of God expressed in Jesus in verse 16 through 18. Look in verse 16 and we see the reception of grace on our lives. And of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace, or maybe perhaps better translated, grace upon grace. The glory of the Word is expressed in who He is and what He does for those who follow Him. See, out of the fullness of Himself, He gives to those who come to Him. And what He pours out on us is grace. And here again, it's the grace of God seen in Jesus Christ and what he is giving to us out of himself, for God is a God of grace. The life of a Christian is one that experiences, as John says here, grace upon grace. You see, all who live on this earth experience what we might call the common grace of God on their lives every day, whether they acknowledge it or not. Whether you acknowledge that there is a creator who created you and that you're responsible to or not, whether you say you believe in him or you don't, you receive the grace of God in your life every day. You wake up, that's an expression of God's grace. You go to work and you arrive safely, it's an expression of God's grace on our lives. We have the strength to go and do what we need to do. It's an expression of God's grace. You look around here in a place like Beaverton, Michigan, and you watch the rain fall on the crops. It's an expression of God's grace. I mean, it sure would look a lot different if it only rained on the fields of the people who followed God, wouldn't it? But God reveals His grace to all. He expresses that grace every day, whether they acknowledge him or not. But there is a greater experience of grace for those who know Jesus as Lord and Savior from their sin. To live in Jesus is to experience his fullness over and over and over again. Like waves washing up on the shore. So the grace of God is manifested time after time. Have you ever stood on the shores of the ocean or perhaps Lake Michigan and watched the waves hit the shore time after time after time after time? You can't stop it. It's going to happen. The grace of God in our lives comes time after time after time after time. And the grace of God doesn't end at salvation. It is expressed repeatedly in our sanctification. As we live in the fullness of Jesus, we begin to see the expressions of his grace. And the longer you know him, the more you see these things. Sometimes we see them right away for what they are. The peace and strength you find in him in the hard times. The comfort of his presence in his word in times of sorrow and struggle. But other times, and I would argue that oftentimes, 
we do not see the grace of God lavished in our lives until later on. When we get down the road a little bit and we look back on our lives, we look back on an instance in our family or in our personal lives or or in the life of another person, and, and we begin to see that this happened here and that happened here and this happened here and this, and it all came together here. Wow, isn't that interesting? No, that's the grace of God. That's his care for us who does these things. I, I've seen it countless times in our own lives. I've seen it in, our, in my family's life, in my life, that God has orchestrated these things all because he is gracious. There's an endless amount of grace flowing in our lives, for it has an endless source. And that grace calls us to its source. That grace calls to you that you may be saved from your sin. That grace calls to you, Christian, that you may have victory over your sin, that you may not live defeated by whatever struggle is going on. That grace calls to you that may find comfort in times of heartache. That grace calls to you that you may live for the glory of God and not for self. And it calls again and again and again. Jesus' glory is expressed in the grace he freely gives. And in verse 17, we see that Jesus' glory is also expressed in the realization of the law. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses and the law of God were held in high regard by the Jewish people, and so they should be. For Moses was a faithful servant of God. And through him, God gave his law to his people. You see, the law, and we read that in the Old Testament, primarily you might think of in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, but it goes far beyond that. It goes throughout the book of Exodus and Leviticus, and then you you pick it up some here in in Numbers and Deuteronomy and these these sorts of places. The law is is an outward physical expression of God's glory and holiness. You cannot read Leviticus and walk away thinking, well, I don't know how holy God is. You'll figure it out about page three, okay? God is a holy God. His glory is, is, is guarded by himself, and, and he, he, these are the things he expected from his people. It shows us exactly who he is and what he expects. And the law is not evil. But the law is not gracious. God is gracious. And God is gracious in giving the law to help us understand who we are. God is gracious because that is his nature. The law is not gracious because that's not its nature. The law was never intended to be gracious. It was intended to show us our sin. It was intended to show us how short we fall of God's standard of perfection. It was intended to communicate the holiness of our God. And bring you to a point of realizing that short of the grace of God, we have no hope. We need Him. And this purpose that God set forth is accomplished very well. 
There is not a soul in this world who can read the law of God and walk away and think, I'm good. And if you do think that, you might want to read a little more. As great as Moses and the law of God through him is, Jesus is better. Because Jesus is the realization of the law. Once again, the grace and truth of God shine forth in Jesus in this. You see, the law could not provide grace, but Jesus does. And we understand that even from our own legal system. If you're driving down the road here in Beaverton, and it's, you know, 30, 35 miles an hour downtown, and you're going 45 or 50 through downtown Beaverton, the law says to you, you're in the wrong. And indeed you are, because the sign says, this is how fast you're supposed to go. There is no grace in that law. Now, if someone pulls you over, and the officer says to you, hey, I'm going to give you a warning, I'm not going to write you a ticket, what has he shown you? He's shown you grace. He doesn't have to do The law isn't the one that gave you the grace. It's him. God, through Jesus, shows us his grace. Those who place their faith in God, in the Old Testament, believing in who he is, would have their sins paid for, not because of their adherence to the law, but because of the grace of God poured out on the cross. Because God, who operates outside of time, would apply Jesus' payment for sin to those in the past who had come to him in faith. So Jesus is the full expression of God's grace. That though we have broken the law, that though we are sinners and stand in, in, in rightful, at the rightful point of condemnation, God commendeth or shows us his love in that he sent his son to die for our sin. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the expression of God's grace. But Jesus is, is not just the expression of God's grace here. It says that, that, that grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is also the full and complete truth of God. He is the highest revelation of God. You see, the laws of the Old Testament pointed ahead to Jesus' coming work. The sacrifices of the Old Testament were markers of the truth, but they were not the full and complete truth. The goat that was offered on the Day of Atonement was a marker of the atonement of Jesus Christ, but it wasn't Jesus. The sacrifices that were offered by the people atoning for their individual sins were markers of there is a price that must be paid, there is blood that must be spilt, but they were not the full and complete truth of that. That is Jesus. He is the full and complete truth of the law. What did Jesus do? Well, he fulfilled all the law by keeping it perfectly so he could express the grace of God. Jesus also fulfilled the law by becoming the truth of what the law pointed to in him. When Paul spoke of Christ's preeminence above all things of the law, this is what he said in Colossians 2.17, which are a shadow of things to come, that is the law, but the substance is of Christ. 
When you look at a shadow on the ground, you may get an idea of what you're looking at. You know, a person or a building or a... But that shadow isn't the real thing. The real thing is wherever the sun is, you know, shining from, right? Over. The law was not the final revelation of God. It's the shadow. The substance is Jesus. The, the, the fulfillment of truth and grace is the Son of God. The law was given by God but found its completeness in Jesus. This is his glory expressed to us in his realization of these things on our behalf. And then finally John says that he is the revelation of God to us. John says in 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. Lastly, Jesus expresses the glory of God to us in that he has made God visible in greater clarity than ever before. We said before, no one has ever seen God. And that's just a straight up fact stated to us from John. No one has seen God. No one on this side of eternity has beheld him because to do so, as we said earlier, would be to be overwhelmed by the glory and killed. God the Father has not been beheld by human eyes. We will not see him until we reach eternity, either as those who will enjoy heaven or stand before him in judgment. All will see God one day. You either enjoy his presence in heaven for all of eternity seeing God, or you will meet him at the judgment seat where you will be judged for eternity. But Jesus came as the one to show us God. It says, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son. And again, I really believe that this verse is better translated, the only God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Because what John is doing here is reinforcing to us that Jesus is God. He is in the bosom of the Father. Again, he's showing us the connection of the Godhead as the three in one. Jesus shares the nature of God. And though his flesh veiled the incredible glory, he has shown us God in ways that we can understand. And he alone can do this, for he is God. No one can tell us about God except God himself. He has to reveal himself to us, and he has through his word. Jesus has declared God to us. John says, he, that is Jesus, has declared him, that is God. That word declare is a very interesting word because we have, from its meaning and from the, the, the Greek word, we have derived the word exegesis. Exegesis is what we use to describe the type of preaching that we engage in. We, 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 we do exegetical preaching here at our church. That is, from the text. When you come here to a service at Beaverton Baptist Church, you don't come here to hear what some blonde, curly-headed dude thinks, okay? You come to hear the Word of God. You come to hear a message from God's Word, to, to exegete the text. That's the, that's the word, okay, that John uses here, that Jesus declared God to us. He showed us who God is. He is God himself, and from himself, he has shown us himself. 
We might say it that way, he has exegeted himself to us. He has unfolded and explained God. And he brings us near by his own actions of grace and truth. He is the greatest revelation. And to him belongs the greatest glory. The glory of God shines through Jesus as the fulfillment of the gospel promises. Jesus is the embodiment of the glory of God. He is glory incarnate. That glory was declared by others and is expressed in who he is and what he does. And the glory of God echoes down through the pages of history to us today, showing us we have hope in him. The truth is straightforward, my friend. We are broken and sinful. We are in need of a Savior. And the grace of God answers that truth with an even greater truth. Jesus came to provide you a way to God. Jesus came to give life to the lifeless, victory to the hopeless, and to make you alive in himself for eternity. We have hope. And God, through Jesus, invites you to place your complete trust in him today. Maybe you have wrestled with the things of God. Well, I, I, I prayed a prayer when I was a kid. If your faith is in the prayer that you prayed as a kid, and did you say the right words, your faith is in the wrong place. Well, I mean, I, I kind of believe in God, and I've tried to do enough good things to try to make it real. If your faith is in enough things to make it real, you don't have real hope. That only comes from Jesus Christ. The one made flesh for you. And he offers this to you. And if you sit here today and you have done this, you have placed your complete trust in him and him alone. What is your attitude towards God's grace? Because if we talk about the grace of God today, you and I must understand that there is a great sometimes misunderstanding of that grace in our lives it very quickly becomes a license to us. Well, hey, grace upon grace, so I'll just go do whatever I want, and God's grace will cover it. My friend, that is the worst understanding of the grace of God you can ever have. Jesus saves us by his grace, and that grace continues to work in our lives, not so that we may further our sin but to draw us in further into godliness every day. We must submit ourselves to him to see growth effected in our lives by his grace. Jesus is the revelation of God to us. Whatever we hope to find in life will not be found outside of him. A life of worth, of peace, of hope and contentment is only found in the truth and grace that rests in him alone. Bring your weary, restless soul to him. 
bow down before his glory and own him as your Lord. And let your life be one that resonates as a trophy of God's grace to others around you. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the grace of God poured out in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the truth of God's word. We thank you for very clearly showing us that we are sinners and cannot save ourselves. Lord, the expression of such truth to our lives is an expression of your grace that you would not leave us to ourselves, but you would interject your conviction into our hearts. And Lord, would you help us now to respond to your grace? Lord, as we sit here today and consider the magnitude of what we have just read, it should engender in our heart some type of response. For one who has never found peace and security in salvation, Lord, would you draw them to yourself and show them that through your grace, There is true life and hope. For the Christian whose life is obscured by sin, whose actions are marred by a continual service to self and not to God, would you show them that your grace is enough to give them strength to live for you? That your grace is enough to get us through whatever we face. And that your grace exalts your glory to us. And Lord, may we live lives of honor and glory to our King. We ask that you would continue to do your work in our hearts, that you would bring us to a point of decision, of commitment to you, of obedience for your honor and your glory. And we ask that tonight as we return to your house that we may worship you again. To you and you alone, your name we pray. Amen.